Okay, so getting into the talk. <clears throat> um, what I have here is a handout um, on the four foundations of mindfulness. Does everybody have one who wants one? <laughs> okay, I mean, they may not have one who wants one. Okay. So, <clears throat> um, the foundations of mindfulness is a discourse given by the Buddha, and um, it's very key. Uh, if I if I had one sutta to keep in my back pocket on Desert Island, it would be the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. It basically describes how mindfulness uh, paves the way for us to um, go from all any state that we're in, any um, any stream of uh, life experience we have, and begins making inroads into liberation, and actually is, uh, as the Buddha promises, actually the pathway his pathway to complete liberation. So I'm going to go through that. Um, it's kind of a long discourse and has many moving pieces, but this is sort of a distillation of what the key points are um, from my perspective. So to begin with, on the, <clears throat> the, the more simple page, um, I also want to say that I, I've been told enough by enough people that maps like this don't work for some of you, and so it's fine to put it down and um, don't be caught up in it. Um, and there are times that this map really doesn't even work for me, and I get sick of it. Let's <laughs> be upfront about that. But you know, if you can stomach it, let's go in. Um, so the first three foundations of mindfulness are here on this uh, front page. There's an M, there's an E, and a plus minus. So starting with the uh, that three-word phrase, every present moment, when you drop in to any present moment, any day of your life, um, uh, this is all waking moments from when you first wake up to first go to sleep, and really any day of the year, any year of your life. These three things are happening. And this is where the Buddha wanted us to get um, very good at understanding what's happening moment by moment. So it's not so much like what's happening when I'm sitting in a room, you know, but like coming right into what is your direct experience? What's actually happening there? And being able to drop in and increasing the depth and breadth of your capacity to meet uh, the present moment that you're in. And if you want to be unconditionally free, you have to be free in all conditions. So mindfulness is meant to be developed so that there isn't a place in your life that you cannot be mindful, that you cannot show up and uh, taste what's happening in that moment. And that is the, the very key to liberation, the very key to uh, awakening from patterns of being stuck and suffering and finding this um, unbroken flow of non-suffering, of being awake. So coming into the E first, E just stands for experience. And <clears throat> when we have a lot of concentration, sometimes we can break experience down to its tiny little pieces. You know, it's this thought, it's that sound, it's this sight, it's that taste. And it, and it happens very fast, and uh, you can really see the, the moving parts of it, all the little pieces. But if that's not the case, then we do come out to larger experiences um, or daily life practice where it's the, the moment you find yourself driving, starting your car, uh, driving along, getting stuck in traffic or not, when you get to work, um, you know, interacting with the people you live with or the animals you live with, uh, what it's like to wake up, what it's like to go to bed, what it's like to shower. So you, you, know, you look at um, broad experiences and that's all coming down to this E. In the text, the Buddha wants you to start with the body, so I'll just make that classical reference that 
really he wanted us to come into the field of direct body sensations and begin working with what it's like to actually have a body and begin getting our relationship right to the body. But later on, it's expanded into um, all experience and waking up in all experience. So experience is sort of the, uh, the content of what's happening moment by moment. Coming to the M, that's the mind you have. And in his tradition, uh, the mind is not up in the head. It's not sort of the intellect. It's not our upstairs experience. It's also actually a very embodied experience. Our nervous system actually um, goes all the way through our body. So it's not just the mind up here. It's what it's like to have conscious experience at all. And actually, it does go all the way down to your body. But it definitely includes the heart. And it definitely includes all the things that are happening more in your um, mental experience. So that's what he would mean by the mind. And he wanted you also to be able to know your mind moment by moment and how it's expressing itself. So not to be confused um, by a rush of strong emotion, or not to be confused by confusion. Can you actually know that confusion is happening while it's happening? Can you know that clarity is happening while it's happening? And can you see them coming and going? So you can you start with experience because it's a little more tangible. We start with what does uh, that apple taste like? What did that breath feel like? What was the quality of the sound you heard on? You just heard. Those are much more tangible. As you get used to tuning into experience, you begin to tune into the mind, the heart, and conscious experience. You tune more into how the mind is knowing, how the mind is relating to the experience it's having. That's much more where the development of freedom happens. It doesn't happen by shifting the experiences you're having. It sh- it, freedom happens in how you are relating to the experiences you're having. And that's a new strategy for many of us. Many of us are trying to actually control our happiness by controlling our experiences. And that's not a bad technique, but it doesn't, uh, it's not a full technique. You actually can't um, cultivate that much happiness, and you can't actually break patterns of being stuck if you're only trying to rearrange the furniture of your life, rearrange the experiences you're having. The development of freedom happens in the heart. It happens in the mind. And that's how your awareness is relating to the experience you're having. That's where we make the inroad. And then that's actually the third foundation of mindfulness. And going back to the second foundation of mindfulness is this plus minus. And the word for that is Vedana, the Pali word for that. And Vedana is just that when your mind contacts an experience in that relationship, is that a pleasant experience, an unpleasant experience, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, which I'm going to call neutral. So that's also happening moment by moment. You're having a pleasant experience, and the pleasure fades, or it increases, or maybe stays the same for a while. You're having a, an experience that's fairly neutral. You know, Walking down the same hallway you've always walked down before, that experience for many of us is neutral after a while. Or are you having an unpleasant experience? Are you having a toothache or a headache? Are you having a stress in your shoulders? Did you step on something? You're pricked by a thorn mild, unpleasant experiences, or are you having difficult experiences, um, the loss of a loved one, um, uh, strong illness in the body, uh, worries and agitations that come up in the heart and mind. Um, he wanted us to also track that. So it's one place you can just look at your mindfulness. I'm having this experience. This is the state of my mind. It's very clear. It's patience. It's patient. The patience is fading. I'm getting impatient. So you can be tracking all that. He also wanted you to be able to say, this is a pleasant experience. It's a mildly pleasant experience. 
oh, this is a very strong, pleasant experience. The pleasure is lasting, and now it's fading into neutral. Oh, I just had a blip of something unpleasant, but then it faded back to neutral. And that was a very strong, lasting, unpleasant experience. So it's a very uh, narrow bandwidth of, ex- of what's happening moment by moment. But as you'll see, it's where we get stuck the most. And so there's a lot of effort put into getting good at tracking pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences and seeing how we struggle over this one factor of mind. Most of our struggle actually happens around pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So we have to kind of up our awareness of if we're struggling or not, we can look at um, the state of the mind or we can look at this pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral capacity of experience. So I just want to check in. How are we doing so far with these? I just sort of blew through three of the four foundations really fast. Um, So any questions come up around that? You can actually see this in neurobiology. My parents are neurobiologists, and I have a science background, so I've been interested. Um, Is that a sign that I'm not talking loud enough? (laughs) Yeah, I'll talk up. So my parents are neurobiologists, and we, we are wired to seek pleasure. Um, pleasant experiences, um, there's a lot of yearning for them. There's a lot of orientation around them. If you're just sort of nibbling along and you find a pleasant experience, you're much more likely to try to seek that out. And so that's some of the wiring we have um, to be pleasure-seeking and to be pain-avoiding. And we share that with all life. You know, we share that even with um, amoeba. If you've ever looked at an amoeba under a microscope, they can squish out in one direction, and they're kind of squishing out, looking for pleasure. I don't know if they have pleasure centers, but that's what I think they're doing. And then they're kind of retracting from something that's unpleasant, so they're kind of squishing, retracting, squishing, retracting. And so we do the same. We have this built-in amoeba capacity, squishing out, trying to find pleasure. So... Yeah, and that's so. The, the the observation was that it's difficult to be mindful of neutral experiences, and all three have a challenge. So if you're struggling or you want to get good at this game, um, you have to learn the tricks of each one. And the trick about neutral is there's no charge to it. There's no reason to connect to it. You know, pleasure that's obvious. Pain that's kind of obvious, but neutral. So we don't connect to it. But a lot of our experience, um, if you're lucky, actually is neutral. Because um, <laughs> it's very easy to find unpleasant experiences. I don't know if you guys have ever read um, Dante's Inferno, or the, Dante, oh, the three trilogies. But uh, I'm not sure what they call it a trilogy. Maybe that's a modern Hollywood thing. But um, there's really graphic descriptions of how to torture a human. You can freeze them, stab them, burn them, uh, stretch them, break them. There's all these great ways to make graphic pleasure. But then when he gets into the, the descriptions of heaven, I try so hard, chapter by chapter, to like show us how great heaven is, but it's just not as juicy as hell. I mean, hell is really graphic, but you can't actually get into like graphic pleasure. Like, oh, it was so good. Like, it just doesn't. But like the stabbing, biting, freezing—that's really, it's really in there. We're built. We're built for that type of um, 
nuance on pain, but uh, we, we don't have the same vocabulary and the same experience around pleasure. But then neutral is even more ephemeral, and we get, a, we get by with spacing out on neutral. But that's more what's coming on the second page. So, so flipping over. <clears throat> this is where we get into the fourth foundation of mindfulness, and it's, um, in the text it's a bunch of, of categories of um, mental processes and they're all about getting stuck and ways to get free, and um, there's a lot in that. And it can be kind of overwhelming just to even like name them, walking through. But what they point at is more of these two patterns here, at least again, my experience. Um, so charting the uh, upward cycle, and this is the mindfulness cycle, um, the first thing we're asked to do is receive our experience. Before we act to it, before we we pursue the pleasure before we space out on the neutral, and before we reject and try to reduce the unpleasant, we increase our capacity to receive the experience just as it is. And this is the training. It's not necessarily a way to live. But when you're training in mindfulness, you're training in putting a pause between the stimulation and a reaction. So we have to pause a little bit and open up this capacity to receive. Where you're extending your range or deepening it, there's probably a reason you haven't gone there. There's probably something about that that was challenging. So this is where the challenge comes in, in mindfulness, is to uh, strengthen your capacity to, as truly as possible, with good fidelity, receive the moment. And there's a whole development of mindfulness strength in just resting in and receiving what's happening. And you do that, you deepen in, you commit yourself, and you just get in with the flow of experience and try to be intimate with it. And there's a point where it takes some work to extend your range, but if you're willing to work at it, you do get stronger with it, and then you find yourself more present than you have been in a situation that would have knocked you out before. It would have been challenging. But you get strong enough to meet the experience. And if you stay with it, you go to the next stage, which is being intimate with that experience. And that's really um, the analogy for me is sort of uh, someone can come to the door and I can open it and we can talk at the door. I've definitely opened the door, but I haven't let them in. And that's very different than if I actually invite that person in, make a cup of tea, and really get to know that person. Um, it's a much deeper relationship to the flow of experience. So first, like, yes, that's a sound that's happening. Yes, the raisin was sweet and slightly tart. So you're getting, the, you're getting an accurate read on it, but you really haven't opened up to fully meet that flow of experience. And that's where this deeper intimacy comes. When you, when you switch into intimacy, you're actually drawn into the experience. You're, you've overcome the work to connect to experience, and you're on sort of that intimate rapport, and you actually start to get drawn into whatever's happening. You can even be drawn into unpleasant experiences without reactivity. And I worked at a hospice for a while, and at first it was overwhelming, you know, just we're so estranged from death in our culture that I just wasn't used to it. And so I was kind of pushed back from it, and I got there, and I was receiving the fact that, yes, people are dying. And then this is what I meant, and I'm at least going to come to terms with that. But then there was a way where I got over my reactivity, and I began to open up to, like, well, well, this person's dying. Well, they're not dead today, so who is this person? Well, they're in a dying process. This is their family. They're having a good day, bad day. And suddenly I'm, I'm intrigued by this person. I really want to know them. And they're dying isn't actually pushing me out of the room. It's what draws me into the room. And it seems more important to be with them 
done just about anything else I could have done with my day. So challenging experiences, at first there's a barrier to meeting them, and that's where the work comes in, and then you can cross over and then you're drawn into the experience. That's when you know you've, you've, you've opened up to this more intimate stage with whatever you've um, come in contact with. We all have places of intimacy in our lives, and we usually want to increase that. We want to increase intimacy, but we don't get there by finding different experiences to be intimate with. We actually have to stretch ourselves to meet life. Um, it, it's a deeper uh, capacity to meet the experiences you're already having rather than constantly seeking out ones you would prefer. When you come into deep intimacy with experience, one thing you'll notice is that it, nothing is lasting that long. Things are in constant flux. And it's just sort of a built-in inherent uh, capacity as we go through life is that nothing is static. Nothing lasts for all that long. It, everything is changing all the time. It's like um, seeing a graphic equalizer uh, playing at a concert. It, it just doesn't, it's not like you get a cello and it just plays one note all the way through. It's coming and going and all, everything's constantly changing. Your, your interest comes and goes. Your heart opens and closes. The, the experiences are all changing. Um, your life is actually in constant flux. That's one of the things that we have to get challenged by is how much flux there is to be connected to. It's like constantly being on a roller coaster and being willing to be on a roller coaster, but that ends up being so true that you're willing to take the ride. Once you see how true it is, you know that you're actually spacing out and numbing out on life by trying to make it static, and you're more willing to face uh, the turbulence of, um, of life as things constantly change. You meet moment by moment, and they can, and they, they can change at any moment, and they do change. You know, sounds come and go, tastes come and go, thoughts come and go, emotions come and go, friends come and go. Um, and if you can be in that dynamic rapport with life, then there's not really a place that you're going to end up suffering much. Um, it may be unpleasant for a while, but there doesn't have to be this added suffering of struggling that life is changing. So this intimacy can open up into this experience of the transient nature of experience and being willing to open yourself to that much um, unpredictability. If you can cope with that, if you can cope with that, then <clears throat> what opens up and draws you into this ever-changing field is a sense of mystery. So it's one of the payoffs is that you, it's not very boring at this level. <laughs> you know, it, it, you're kind of enwrapped. There's an awe. There's like, what the hell is going to happen next? And if I think I know what's going to happen next, I can space out. You know, I, I knew you yesterday, so I don't really have to know you that much better today. And, you know, we have, our, we have our shtick, and we kind of can go a long time on that. And then you actually were changing all along, and suddenly I find myself not knowing you. And how, where'd that happen? You were changing all along, I was changing all along. If you can stay fresh with that, then each person is this sort of unending mystery. Each moment of your life can draw you in if you can cope with that much um, flux. And then there's this uh, mystery to what's happening next and also this state of awe. You can sort of be living in a constant state of awe. It's just so fascinating to be alive, to be in this unfolding mystery. Um, and it's very beautiful. Even unpleasant experiences have a beauty to them. So this is the reward. The, the challenge comes in receiving, but the reward is when you actually drop past that barrier, you open up to this great flow of this beautiful intimacy. And you know, as a monk, I gave up many things. I gave up um, creature comforts, you know, low-grade pleasure. And once I got over the, the discomforts of that, um, 
it was uh, probably the most beautiful year um, I ever had. And just conditions were such that I couldn't keep going. But um, I definitely didn't regret a day I was ordained. But that's the work of it, is that you actually have to deeply receive life. And then it begins to reward you with this intimacy. As you get into the flow of intimacy, and when that stabilizes some, as opposed to just being something random that happened, like, oh, it was such a good day, and then we can't do it again, or you know, I met this person, we had this great conversation, but the next day it wasn't there, I don't know what the connection was. Um, <clears throat> when it's hit or miss, it's hard to really understand it. But when you can stabilize intimacy some, you can ask this, this sort of deeper reflection, and it's not an intellectual reflection, it's in this experience, what is supporting this much intimacy? What's supporting me being this dynamic with life? How can I be this adaptable? And it's where we go to the next day is you actually have a fluid rapport with life. And you're not trying to fix things into something reliable and solid. You're okay with the flux, but being okay with the flux means that you also have to be okay with flux very deeply and internally. So your sense of self ends up being fluid and dynamic. And we all have experienced this, and we all know what it's like to not be in fluid rapport with life. When life throws us something and we cannot adapt to it, we, we pit ourselves against it. But if you look at the times of your life that you deeply enjoy, probably the quality that was so enjoyable about it was that you were in this um, fluid, open rapport. You know, dancing at a concert, walking on a beach, um, holding a puppy, being with a newborn, being so awed by it that like, all your petty concerns suddenly evaporate and you're in this awe. And then you're, you're enwrapped and you watch yourself changing. Falling in love is like this. Um, even the dying process, you have to give shit up. And you give it up <clears throat> and you find yourself free of a whole bunch of worry and consternation. I mean, you can inherit difficulties, but it's that fluid rapport, that fluid self. Um, and I have self in quotes here because it's, it's still not a self. You can't find it and say, I, now I have a fluid self and I can get it. <laughs> it's like I hold it and it's pouring through my fingers and I try to scoop it up and hold it in a cup. and It's not like that. You have to really just surrender into the fluid rapport with life. And because of this intimacy and this fluidity, when you come to finally respond to whatever is happening, it's graceful and it's appropriate. And it's not trying to get rid of experience out of an agitation. You're trying to improve the experience for yourself or other. But that tends to deepen the relationship. If someone's suffering, you really want to help. But it doesn't make the suffering wrong. It just means that as your heart is opened and is touched, you're not trying to you know, scramble to get rid of something or you're not trying to eagerly grasp something. Um, you respond to it. And you can respond with a lot of courage and not a lot of fear of what, what that might cause you. So I'm willing to speak up against injustice because I care. I have a fluid, intimate rapport with a part of society that's, that's struggling, and I'm going to speak up with around that. And I'm not afraid of the consequences. And that this courage can come. So the first part of mindfulness is um, it's a little bit passive. But I mean, it's not passive, but it can appear passive. You're really opening up to feel life. And then respond, definitely respond, once you have an open rapport. And if you're struggling with life, you might you know, do a little bit of both. You try to relax, you try to adjust things, try to relax, try to adjust things. But the depth of it is really coming into um, 
not making an enemy out of the situation, not increasing a, a defiance against what's happening. And this is what we did at the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, is how do you actually take on really big issues in a way that is not about struggling or rejection of experience? And so taking a really complicated social phenomena like uh, racism, or really complicated phenomena like the degradation of the environment or the lead into the war, you know, if you relax back too much, you're disconnected. If you engage too much, you're struggling. And trying to find that balance where you're fully engaged, fully committed, but fluid in the connection, intimate with the pain and suffering, which is hard. So that's where we try to fight against something and we get pissed off. And then we're pushing against something and it pushes back and we lock in on a war. How do you stay intimate? How do you stay connected to something unpleasant? How do you pace yourself with that? Stay fully committed to the relationship, to the long-term relationship with a difficult situation. And that's what socially engaged Buddhism is all about. So definitely there's response and there's action and there's courage. Um, <laughs> and then it feeds in on itself. So if you can open your heart in one moment and you don't cling to that opening, you're more able to meet the next. And you're more able to meet the next and more able to meet the next. And it can be a rewarding feedback loop to stay fluid. And then you hit a bump. You know, you hit some experience or the mind gets tired, something happens, and it's hard to meet the next moment. But you can start getting these windows of opening. And it's fluidity, it's intimacy, and it's a type of responsibility or responsing to your environment through this intimacy. And this is the mindfulness cycle. And that's what I know that uh, the awakening process feels like, that there's fewer and fewer situations that you're not intimate with. There are fewer and fewer situations where you're not, you find yourself not adaptable. And there are fewer and fewer situations where you wouldn't respond, where you don't have a responsive rapport with what's happening. And those three things really qualify the feeling of the awakening process and what it's like to be around awakened people. Very intimate, very adaptable, and very responsive to anybody, anything, any, any time of day that they find themselves in an experience. They are responsive, they are fluid, they are intimate. But until that's you know, a fixed thing where you always have this um, capacity to be fluid, intimate with experience, no matter what the universe would throw you, there's some combination of mind experience and pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral where a struggle happens. And so we up our mindfulness to be mindful of when we're not mindful. We up our capacity to know when we're not fully receiving or being intimate with what's going on. When this bottom loop happens, um, unconsciously, we cause a lot of suffering for ourselves and others. But when we can actually bring our mindfulness down into this cycle, we liberate ourselves tremendously. So a lot of the spiritual path is resting ourselves, developing ourselves, but then having courage to go down into a pattern where the heart is closed, where the mind is closed, and begin opening up and building intimacy with whatever that, that knot is, whatever the difficulty is, whatever the struggle is, deepening your capacity to be intimate there. So done consciously, this is a more liberating path than just the, where you've already gained intimacy, where you've already gained fluidity. I'm not that much more liberated on a beach with a dog and a ball. I've already liberated myself there, and you know, it's, it's a win. But there are places where I know I'm stuck, 
places where I'm like, God, I keep getting hung up there. So that's a place where I, I go in. And when I make headway into a place I've been stuck before, I liberate a huge capacity of my mind and heart from a place I've been stuck before. So you can even seek these things out if you want to um, get all macho about it. <laughs> um, so getting into the struggle, this is where knowing the Vedana is really important because when you're intimate, it just doesn't even matter if it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. She's like, oh, wow, it's pleasant. That's so cool. Oh, wow, it's fading. Isn't that cool? Oh, wow, it's gotten unpleasant. Wow, that's also cool. Weird. Okay, what's next? Oh, wow, this is happening. And it just doesn't matter. But where we struggle with experience, if you find yourself unable to, to meet the experience, tuning into pleasant, unpleasant, neutral will give you a, a good um, hint at where you might be caught. So around pleasant experiences, we get into struggling around craving. The pleasure isn't coming fast enough. It wasn't strong enough when it came, and it went too quick. So this is the whole category of struggling around pleasure. It's not enough, not fast enough, not big enough, and not the right shape or taste. It was pleasant, but it wasn't what I wanted out of the pleasure. There had to be more of it. It had to be this. It had to be that. Um, my dad, when I was a monk, um, bless his heart, sent me a pound of M&Ms. <laughs> which is sent halfway around the world is, you know, it's no small feat, but actually got to the monastery in this really weird way. And that's like, oh, a pound of M&Ms, this is great. You know, I could eat one a day for the next three years, or I could share them, all this, you know, possibilities for pleasure. It was great. I'm like, oh, this is great. But, you know, I wasn't going to eat them all. I was just kind of like, ah, oh, what a great thing to have. And I loved my dad for a while. And that was, that was what was going through my mind for the first 20 minutes. <laughs> I had one that was good, and then the, the pleasure faded a little bit, and I was like, okay, I'll go back to my breath. Yeah. I mean, I'll have one more M&M, &M and then just like really enjoy that gift before I like renounce it and go back to my austere path. <laughs> and had the second one, and it wasn't as good as the first, and I was like, oh, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I, I, I reached for it, and I was disappointed. I'm hooked. And I sat there you know, with my knee pain and my mind wandering and settling it and got in the smile, like, this is nothing compared to an M&M. &M. <laughs> I mean, you have to be so concentrated for it to beat out M&M's. Like, oh, God. And I kept looking at the bag, and I hid it under the, my bed, but I knew where I hid it. Like, duh. <laughs> so I have to have a friend come over, and they have to hide it, and then I have to ask my friend for it when I want one, and it's so complicated. And I was like, ah, oh, this bag of M&M's turned into the biggest curse. I was like, damn this pleasure. It's so difficult. It's like, well, I'm going to give it away. I'm going to give it away. And I, and like, I got obsessed about this thing and all these plans. How was I going to give it away? And, it's just like, and this thing is like, Dad, you've cursed me with those freaking M&Ms. Like, why? Why? Don't do this. And so I finally, I was just like, I just get them out of here. And I had to, like, well, that's, so, that's not it. I'm like, it's ditching my pleasure. It's not really Donna. And I like, so this whole thing happened. Like, <laughs> like, I can't even get Donna points. I'm not even going to try call it Donna. It's definitely like, I'm just lost in this obsession around it. And same thing happens, like, they'll want to reward you, and they give you, like, a, a liter of honey. It's like, oh, great, I'll have honey for my tea. Monks can keep honey for a long time, and you know, a little honey every now and then in my tea, and like, ah. Oh. <laughs> like, ah, oh, crushed. This tremendous resolve to be one of the Buddha's noble sons crushed by a liter of honey or a bag of M&Ms. I'm so unworthy. <laughs> um, and then uh, unpleasant experiences, we don't like them. 
Yeah, it's pretty simple why we struggle around them. And it's hard to fake liking them. So we actually usually have to open up to the aversion and the fear and the worry agitation. It's almost guaranteed to be somewhere nearby. And so it's hard to get distance on that. Um, and for that, you actually can't go into deep states and concentration on unpleasant experiences because there is a built-in agitation from unpleasant experiences, but you actually can be quite settled with them. You can increase your capacity to feel strong sensations in the body, strong um, mental states, um, but they are unpleasant. And so there's little wearing after a while to be with them. So fear comes up, um, anger comes up, irritation comes up. It's pretty easy. But you can extend your range so that that's not automatic. And you actually find these big windows where you're not being thrown by unpleasant circumstances. I've had, a, I've had an illness, actually, since I was in Burma for the last 11 years. And <clears throat> I'm quite good at being equanimous with it. It's not joy. <laughs> but there is an ability to be with you know, floating migraines and uh, backaches and other things that I couldn't have done before. And I surprised myself what I can sustain myself in presence with. Um, and it's liberating. It's liberating not to be running from pain, to have some capacity to meet life as it actually is occurring. I don't wish it on anybody, but I wish the freedom on everybody. And then the real tricky one is neutral experiences. And <clears throat> we get away with it. So there's, there's no, you have to be really on it to see the suffering around spacing out or neglecting neutral experiences. Now, it comes that you find yourself becoming estranged from your own life. You're estranged from your, the backside of your head because you don't invest a, a intimacy with it. And why? You get away with it. You know, like It's just there, and I don't bother it, and it doesn't bother me, and <laughs> I comb it every now and then, or I shave it. But that, that's about it. You know, it's like you actually have. It's a part of your body. But so many parts of our body we haven't invested in because we haven't had to until you find yourself... Uh, like there's, an, there's a bit of an illness in that relationship to your body. And then you have to undo all that numbness and then get to whatever's going on behind it. And the same with uh, the things we take for granted. Uh, it's so easy to take people for granted, for situations for granted, find the neutral, space out, and get away with it until you've developed a numbness to that area. And then it's very hard to open up intimacy back where you've already kind of spaced out. There's just no, there's no way in. Um, there's no sensation there because it's gotten numb. And it takes a while to invest in numb places to get them back to at least neutral. And then open up your capacity to be present and find awe and mystery even in neutral experiences. So don't neglect them. And many of our experiences are neutral. I mean, again, unless you have, you're have in war or unless your life is extremely difficult, after a while, most things become known to you and it's easy to space out of them. Um, so we, a lot of the, the retreat work and a lot of the breath itself is often kind of neutral. So it's really up to you. The breath is good because it, you know, chocolate is it's half the draw is that it's pleasant, so you, your mind goes to it. But the breath is neutral. Body sensations are often neutral, so it's your work of being present. And that's why neutral objects are good for um, developing capacity to be present. In the struggling stage, there's usually some perspective, there's some agitation, and there's some confusion, like there's some agitation happening. And that's a good place to recognize that <clears throat> you need to up your mindfulness in what's happening there, because if it actually goes further, 
unlike the, the drop into intimacy, you can drop deeper into the struggle, and the struggle becomes locked in. And so craving locks into clinging, and it just, it just is a grip that won't let go. And the, the view from inside clinging reinforces the clinging. Even if it's a suffering state, you get lost when this lock happens. So when the craving locks into clinging, with that goes perspective, any perspective. So it's extremely difficult to be mindful of a place that you're clinging until that clinging kicks up so much suffering that you're motivated to break it open and see like something is torn out of your grip, then you're willing to kind of wake up around it. But often by the time we're clinging to something, we build a lot of stories and identity and rationale behind the clinging. So it's like an alcoholic who completely justifies their use of alcohol, and it's hard to break through that that denial. And each of us have patterns where we're clinging. And we don't even know it because we're so used to the view of the clinging that even somebody trying to liberate us, they sound insane. But it's the distortion we have from the clinging. So the struggle of craving goes into clinging, and that's where I have this uh, entrenched view. These are trenches in the mind, actually. The word sankara um, is often talked about as um, wearing a groove in a rock just by this constant uh, habitual um, clinging and digging in. You actually can groove uh, your mind so it has this predilection to, to stay stuck there. Um, and you can see yourself building your rationale. That mosquito is annoying everybody. It deserves to die, and it comes so fast that you kill it, and then you want to kill every mosquito, and then and you have this view that they deserve to die. And trying to convince somebody that's not the case <laughs> is challenging once that view is so set in. Um, and then neutral experiences that we've been numb to, and that we've been neglecting, actually they become numb. And you don't even know that you have numbness because there's no sensation there anymore. So you can't even feel into it because uh, you've neglected it for so long. And that's a very hard place to get back into intimacy with a place that's become numb in your life, either in your body, in your relationships. You, know, you move to a new city and you don't know where to drive, so you drive all these weird roads, but you find the best road to drive on and you always drive that way. And then you can't drive any other way until some, you drive in a car with somebody who's new and they show you a new part of the place you've been living forever. It's fun to have guests because they're not grooved into habits and patterns around where you are. And suddenly you, just, you rediscover something. Um, I had a friend come from Germany, and we were walking around San Francisco, and she said, oh, I've been hearing about this bridge. I was like, oh, I'm going to take you to the best place, Koi Tower, we're going to see the bridge, and the foggy day is going to be so beautiful. And we were walking around in spirals. And we are just about to take the spiral where we could see the Golden Gate Bridge. And she goes, oh, my God, you're right. It's so beautiful. And I was like, what? And she was looking at the Bay Bridge. <laughs> it's like, the Bay Bridge? It's like, and I was just about to say, no, that's not beautiful. That's the Bay Bridge. Get going, because I know what's beautiful. And she was like, enwrapped. I was like, why would you be enwrapped at the Bay Bridge? And so I had to stand there looking at it. I was like, yeah, it's actually kind of beautiful. It's huge. I mean, it's like long, and then I, get, I never stop to look at Treasure Island. I'm always like trying to get across this. Like, oh, the freaking Bay Bridge is like a you know like a canyon you have to cross, and so it's like just get me through that thing. I hope there's not traffic, but like, it's a miracle. Yeah, it, it's a it's a pretty impressive thing. So we sat there and we enjoyed the Bay Bridge, and like, do I even want to show you the Golden Gate Bridge? I don't know. <laughs> I feel so saturated with how beautiful this is. I also don't want to ruin it, but then. 
And we walked around, and we were kind of saturated with the Bay Bridge. And so we saw the Golden Gate Bridge. We're like, yeah, it's beautiful too. But we'd already like, been so in love with the Bay Bridge. I was like, hmm, okay. But you know, for me, I was just like, whatever. Let's go to the, the real bridge. Um, <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> when you get into these entrenchments, uh, and it's difficult to wake up there. So um, the Buddha said the best way to intervene is around craving. And that, that's the weak link in this whole pattern is when you're struggling. And when you begin to struggle, you know, get quick. And go, whoa, what's going on? I was flowing. I thought it was good, but all of a sudden there's a struggle happening here. What is it? Where is it? Okay, this is a pleasant experience. That means it's craving. Okay, where is it? Oh, there it is. I got it. Um, you know, you can actually track it because by the time it locks in, with it goes perspective. And then there's no motivation or clarity to even make the inroad. And everything you do from a, a clinging place tends to reinforce the clinging. And then you get more and more stuck and you can't find your way out. When you're in an entrenchment, when you actually begin to wake up into it, and usually it's around the suffering that happens around the entrenchment, where you can feel that there's just no flow of intimacy. And so you start to wake up and like, wow, there's a big barrier, but I'm committed to getting across it and coming back into connection with what's happening. You can see that the mortar holding all the bricks of the trench together (laughs) um, is this uh, urge to have a static self, to have a reliable self, or reliable possessions, which imbue a reliable self. So this is who I am. And I'd, rather, I'd even rather be a bad me, but a predictable bad me, a static bad me, than an unknown, uncertain bad me. But I'm hoping every now and then that I can do self-improvement to finally get to be the good me and a lasting version of the good me. Or I want to you know, live in the right house, the pleasant house, and then that's where I invest. I try to own and uh, rally myself around um, possessions, identities, um, trying to shore up my capacity to be happy, or at least feel safe, um, in all this fluctuation. So I'm unwilling to meet the ever-changing nature of reality. So I'm trying to, um, to shore it up. I'm trying to get it together. And that, that urge is around having some reliable place to call home. And in the liberated mind, the reliable place is no home. The home is in the moment. The home is in the flow. The home is... It's like dancing with 10,000 people at a rock concert, and you're in the flow, and it's all flux, and everybody's dancing. You know, that's a really safe place to be because everybody, not everybody, but you can imagine that a lot of people are happy and in flow and in tune. But that's very different than being you know, struck and ag- stuck and agitated and at odds with people. Um, and rather than shoring yourself up, there's a lot that can be gained by going back into intimate flow with whatever's happening. But that's the urge, is to solidify, tighten, get something predictable, something you can rely on. And that pulls you out of experience, and it makes something is going to threaten that stability. And so something about reality is now at odds, and you, ha- and you have a built-in struggle with the ever-changing nature. You know, houses get old, so you have to re- repaint them. And your body gets old, so you have to repaint it. <laughs> and you have to cut pieces off and re- redo it because it's, it's aging on you. It's not reliable. You have to um, you know, work on relationships to maintain them so that they, they are just like they were. And <clears throat> there's a lot of urge that trying to fight things progressing and things changing versus allowing that to be. And then when the static self takes hold, 
part of what will happen is that rather than being responsive to what's happening, there's a reaction. There's a bit of a pushback against experience because experiences can be very threatening. You either want to have certain experiences that are not happening that re reinvest you, that shore up your sense of stability, or there's threatening experiences that you have to push back against in order to maintain your stability. So you end up having a lot of push and pull against the flow of experience, a lot of struggle with experience, trying to maintain the stability. And that's where a lot of harm, greed, um, consternation comes out of this static self and its rapport with life. And if you get stuck in this static thing, in one moment, like you're flowing along and then something happens, a bump happens, and you, you contract a little bit. You're having a good day, you get a bad phone call, puts you in a bad mood. And then out of that bad mood, you drive home, and there's traffic, and you can't meet that experience either. So you get in a bad mood, you're exhausted, you get home, and then something's happening at home, and you, rather than being able to meet it, you're frustrated, and that leaks out, and then someone has a bad reaction to that, and it just keeps feeding on itself. And you can have a whole bad day because something happened, you couldn't meet it, and then everything that happened that day was really irritating because you're, everything you're reacting against and trying to manage, and again, you're stuck within it. It's hard to see it while it's happening, unless you're in more of a, um, like a 50-50 or 70-30 relationship to the suffering. Once it, it's, once it takes over, it's hard to have perspective. But when there's still some struggle happening as opposed to that lockdown, you can, mindfulness can get in there. And then you can begin to untie the knot from within the experience itself without changing it, just changing this um, struggle you're having. And maybe the, the <clears throat> so anyways, that, that's, the, uh, that's the suffering loop. And this is a very shorthand to a very complicated, not complicated, but very intricate model of um, dependent origination. But it's the pieces that um, you can actually track and see the machinery of how we construct our own suffering. And in this model, it really isn't about unpleasant experiences. They have a, a slight, um, there's a slight struggling, a slight suffering just because they're unpleasant but so much more of where we get imprisoned. We construct that, that prison out of our struggle with reality. And we, we bind those prisons, make it very strong. Like we're, we're building the brick wall and the iron bars by entrenching ourselves into our views, into our habits that resist reality versus meeting it and by meeting it, blending with it and shifting it you can make change, but if, you're, if it's this built-in struggle and resistance against experience, um, that's where you are building your own prison cell and then suffering within, within it. So the <clears throat> two things I'll say kind of quickly, um, just to cap this off, is that if you, if you get good at this, if you get good at this game, there's a way, there's a very subtle seduction to try to get a static spiritual self, and they're, they're horrible people. <laughs> and, I, and I do it, and I'm a horrible person when I do it, because um, it seems like I'm actually being fluid and intimate, but I'm, some part of me is, is milking the situation, trying to establish myself as a good spiritual being, as someone who knows a little bit more, a little more patient, you know, a little further ahead than somebody. I, can, I don't always catch those, because you know, for the most part, I'm trying to be a good person, but then it's where the, um, the static self is trying to even take over the mindfulness. And it's a whole way to be aware of. And a good friend will pop your bubble <laughs> and show you this and show you that you know, you're not on here. You're actually off. Um, 
So that whole thing about the spiritual ego, the spiritual self. And then um, I work with people who suffer from PTSD and um, PTSD-like experiences. And we all have ranges of experience that we can't open up to yet. And some of that opening will happen by being courageous and actually leaning into what's happening. But when it comes to actual um, traumatic impact um, by a classic trauma or by something that um, ends up having something like a traumatic impact on you, then you actually have to be very, very careful about how you charge into that. And you, you open up to it by degrees and with patience. And I had one, my first teacher I went to um, in Burma, Sadhu Upandita, he was all about the courage. And so I ended up charging deep into my psyche in places I didn't quite belong yet. Um, and it took me a long time to make sense of that, um, those experiences. So I'm glad I did this trauma study because it actually um, showed me a lot about where we can be courageous and where courage actually comes from patience. Patience to deepen intimacy in a place where there's a lot of charge, where the sense of self is very volatile, very unstable, and not just blowing the lid off that, but taking that in degrees um, and opening those things up. And then the liberation that happens there is phenomenal. Um, you just have to be a little more careful around places of trauma. Um, anyways, uh, when taken to its full, um, the promise and um, some of my experience is that this actually is the map to the freedom I understand through the Theravadan path. And um, it does taste like um, ever-increasing intimacy. And there's moments that before were fleeting, and they were stuck in very um, narrow circumstances. And then that has broadened to where um, it's, I'm, I'm quite used to it now, quite used to living um, a very beautiful, intimate flow. There is not really a fixed sense of who I am. I, I don't try to bind it, or if I do, I know that, that I'm just stuck there. And usually it's about letting go of trying to establish that identity, trying to find security in, in uh, nailing myself down um, someplace. Even looking at trying to nail down unpleasant aspects of myself, at least they're predictable. So letting go of those identities as well and just experiencing it directly. Yeah, now there's a little bit of depression and now it's passing. So neither are me. Neither are a fixed attribute of me. Neither is the, the brilliance that you all are receiving right now. <laughs> it, uh, it's, a, it's a fleeting thing. And if you talk to me tomorrow morning, you're not going to get a lot of brilliance because I'm not a morning person. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> God laughed. Huh. Um, yeah, so that's the wrap-up on that. Um, I'll stay a little bit longer um, if you all have questions about this. And um, This is a lot of what I'm going to be exploring in the fall um, series, in this three-month series, is really looking at, at where the stretch is possible in your daily life and um, opening up intimacy in places where it's been challenged before. And uh, that's a fun exploration. Thanks for your attention, and um, I really have appreciated being back connected to this community. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.